We're uh, following a series together, <clears throat> The Truth About, and uh, this morning, quite appropriately, is The Truth About Life, The Truth About Life. Last week, The Truth About Heaven, next week, The Truth About Hell. If you missed last week and you're interested, then you can uh, uh, find that on the website, and then come next week and join us as we look again at other major truths around which we build our lives and build a solid foundation as Christians. So the truth about life, everybody really wants a great life. Few, though, seem to be finding it. In this image-driven world, people go through great lengths in order to project the image that their life is great. We put a lot of effort into keeping up appearances. That's why Mrs. Bucket or Mrs. Bouquet is uh, humorous on one level because we understand the drive that's within her. The same drive is played out in a series not quite so humorous uh, like Desperate Housewives. But scratch just a little bit below the image and you discover that life for many people isn't really working. In my job, I see people from every strata of society struggling with something that they share in common. From children who long for parents who will love them, to parents who long for children to hold. From mourners weeping for what they have lost, from others seeking what they seem unable to find. From those on the edge of financial meltdown, or those who've got more money than they know what to do with, but still can't buy what they really want. People with a common search for a life that seems to elude them. In the UK alone, uh, 24 million people are taking antidepressants. Not necessarily, uh, or almost not certainly because they are weak or cannot cope, but because life has dealt them a particularly harsh deal. Each year, these figures go back some way now, Uh, they have only increased in recent years, 143,000 divorces. That's an awful lot of pain and heartache. 147,000 children involved, an awful lot more pain and heartache, representing an awful lot of people that find themselves in a situation they never wanted to be in and probably don't want to be in. Five and a half million crimes will be committed this year and every year. That's a lot of offenders and also a lot of victims. Eight million people are in in debt in the UK and an incredible one in five are on some kind of blacklist regarding credit charges. The life we've always wanted seems to be eluding us. Statistics tell us, and they say all kinds of things, don't they? But they do say that 66% of people in our country would describe themselves as unhappy. A staggering two out of three. This one won't surprise you that 84% of of, uh, people do not trust politicians. But this might, 50% of kids living in inner cities are living below the poverty line. And topical this week was this one, that 23% A staggering 23% of pregnancies in our country end in abortion. I forget who it was, it might have been C.K. Chesterton or someone of that ilk said, the quality of a society is expressed by the way they deal with their most vulnerable. If that be true, it's a damning indictment on our culture. 
200,000 seven-year-olds in the UK can't read, and 50% of the UK population share between them just 6% of the nation's wealth. It all seems too true that most people live lives of quiet desperation. In short, we live in an age when we go to the cisterns but find no water. They return with their jars unfilled, dismayed and despairing are words that are often used as commentators write about life in our world. Whatever image we create, whatever keeping up appearances means for us today, beneath the surface, life eludes us. Is that why respectable, quiet, gentrified English people put on their plastic bowler hats and their streamers and sing with great gusto, land of hope and glory, as if? Is it the vain belief that if only we sing it loud enough, somehow our voices can will it into being? I guess it'll take more than a song. What will it take? for us to find the life that eludes us. Will it take good politics? Can good politics take us to a new utopia? On the 4th of May 1979, Margaret Thatcher, on coming to office, picked up the need that there was in the country at that time, and still is, for hope. Quoting the 12th century Christian St. Francis of Assisi, she was right, we are in desperate need of hope, but at a much deeper level than politics or economics can provide for us. Such regimes will come and go, but that quiet despair murmurs on. What about possessions, the cult of consumerism, the temples, the shopping temples built to the god of materialism? We think that the more we have, the better we will feel. And yet in reality, the more that we have, the more we realise there's a hole inside us that simply seems unable to be filled. Others look for it in power, prestige or position. Yet people find that when they get to the top of their particular tree, there is nothing there to quench them. Countless numbers of stars and entrepreneurs lament the reality of discovering an empty pot at the end of their illusionary rainbow. He was right. The power of man has grown in every sphere except over himself. External success still does not seem to conquer the need within. Promiscuity, physical closeness, but physical closeness without uh, life closeness leaves one feeling empty and used. Politics, possessions, power, promiscuity, piety if you want another P, or spirituality. People look for it in all kinds of spirituality. It's not that spiritual things are dead in our world or in our country. It's very much alive and well. Type in spirituality in the UK and Google will give you at least two million pages for you to explore on a Sunday afternoon. Christmas card that the Secretary of State for Culture and Media and Sport, Tessa Jowell, when she was, illustrates the confusion that reigns in our land. And I think he was right, that when people stop believing in God, they do not believe in nothing. Instead, they end up believing in anything. So where can we find this great life? 
that deep inside, I suggest that you and I, deep down, believe we were made for. We believe instinctively that we were made for more than this. But it seems to elude us at every turn. Well, firstly, the great life, the great life begins where? It begins with God. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life in all of its fullness. And Jesus went on to explain that this great life comes out of a relationship of knowing him. This is, Jesus said, eternal life. Now the word eternal is not just about time, a quality of time, the length of time, but it's also the measure of the quality of life. Not just the quantity of time, but the quality of time. A great life, he says, that comes from knowing the true God and Jesus Christ, whom the true God has sent. And I suspect in our friendships we can get a glimpse of this. For all of us here, friendships are incredibly powerful and important things. Our life can rise and fall with our friendships. If we develop in our life a new friendship, it seems like so much has changed. We might live in the same house, drive the same car, do the same job, but we're different. The friendship gives us a new meaning, purpose, inspiration, pleasure, as well as support for our lives. Friendships are vital for our flourishing. Without friends, no one would choose to live, though we had all other goods. If all that be true of human friendships, how much more if you were to know God as a friend in a real, dynamic, living way? Jesus came to bring God to us, a living presence in our daily lives, bringing purpose and meaning, light in our darkness, strength in our weakness, joy in our sorrow, hope in our despair. The trouble is, people think that getting close to God would be stifling, it would be deadly boring, and probably quite terrifying too. I've told you before about my headmaster, but I think it's a useful analogy because many of us can relate to it. In the sixth form, I was invited to go and meet my headmaster who was carrying out some selection interviews at the end of our schooling. I had never spoken a whole sentence to my headmaster in the seven years that I was at Cardiff High School. He was in every sense unapproachable, out of reach, rather terrifying. That moment you were in his presence you turned to a quivering wreck. You felt guilty about everything. And you were intensely self-conscious, not just about what you said, but about what you were thinking. You were sure he could see what you were thinking. In five minutes of being in his presence, you were utterly exhausted. I was chatting with someone last week who was uh, sharing with me similar sentiments of being asked in school to go to her headmaster and quite simply to give him a rather mundane message. But she said, I, I was terrified. I'd never spoken to my headmaster. Petrified, she summoned the courage and knocked on his door and with all her poise and concentration, delivered the message as plainly and as unambiguously as she possibly could. The headmaster thanked her and dismissed her, but so panicked and disorientated was she by the experience that she turned the wrong way, opened the cupboard door thinking it was the exit, and stepped inside said cupboard. For some of us, the thoughts of life close up and personal with God are just as terrifying. 
And life with God seems to be as much fun as taking your headmaster for a night out on the town. (laughs) But we've got God wrong, you know. We've got God wrong. He's nothing like that image that we easily map onto him. Think with me for a moment the kind of God he must be. What kind of God designs mountains and forests to walk in? What kind of God made seas to sail on and to swim in and to sit by? Who decided that there should be sunsets, moonlit nights, star-filled skies, rainbows and raindrops? Who decided that human beings should be able to smile, to laugh, to enjoy, to create, to plan, to play, to sing, to run, to jump, to dance, to flourish? Who decided that sex should be pleasurable, that eating could be a delight, that sleeping would bring rest? Whose idea was it that birds and animals and plants should be all around us for us to enjoy? The very one who makes life great is the one who makes life. And even though he is the source of all these lovely things, He was very aware that for us the idea of being close to him might be overwhelming. And so he came to us, not as the all-powerful God that he was, but he came to us as a baby, a vulnerable baby, and grew to be a man so we would know that he was approachable. Do you know what? Nobody ran to my headmaster when they saw him coming down the corridor. But the children ran to Jesus. And they jumped all over him. And he gathered them in his arms and he blessed them. That's the God who makes life. That's the God that makes life worth living. Knowing him is where the great life begins. Secondly though, the great life is based on relationships. Relationships, as we've already been suggesting, are what makes life great. And they're different for each one of us. For some of us, that's marriage. For some of us, it's friendship within families or beyond families. For all of us as Christians, it involves the church family. But often while we strive for success in so many areas of our lives, our relationships can be starved of the attention they need. There's a program on BBC Two a few weeks ago about happiness. I don't know whether any of you saw it. And this was a quote in the midst of this program on happiness. Once the average income in a country goes above £10,000, extra riches do not make people any happier, but our relationships do. We didn't really need a BBC Two programme or some modern day research to tell us what the maker of life said 2,000 years ago, summing it up in this that we call the greatest commandment. He said, this is what life is all about. It's about knowing God, loving God, and it's about knowing and loving one another. And all too often, all too often in our success-orientated world, our relationships are left to limp along or even to go into decline and we sit back doing seemingly little about them as we strive for some greater success. The life that God has given us is based around relationships. To be reconnected with God and reconnected with those around you. These two things go hand in hand. You will never live the great life unless you reconnect with God and reconnect with those around you. You'll never live the the great life without giving the relationships God has given you the time that they need. 
And if the relational parts of your life are in a stew, you'll find that your life is in a stew. If they're not right, then your life will not be right. The truth about life, the truth about life, is that it is about relationships. We were made relational beings. And one of the reasons that people are so unhappy, thinking back to that two out of three, uh, people in the UK, that survey from earlier on, is that life today has become so fragmented. Our relationships are so much more deficient than they used to be. And if we're going to recapture the great life as the people of God, we must get these relationships sorted out in our lives as best we can. And that means another thing about the great life. You see, the great life requires G-R-E and equilibrium. God's life is a life of balance. Sometimes we think that if we give our lives to God, we will, we will lose that balance. No, God will put our life back into balance. But it's that equilibrium that we find so hard to maintain. I see people working all hours and achieving great things, but at what cost? When people get married, I often tell them the story of the man at the circus. You see, we live in such a fast-moving world, and uh, the, the drive to achieve is so strong in our culture, there's so much to do, that it's very easy for married people very quickly no longer to have time for each other. And so I tell the story about the man at the circus. He's the spinning plate man. Have you seen him? First he takes just one plate and he puts it on a pole and he gives it a spin. Soon he has 50 plates spinning on poles in front of the auditorium. The crowd are cheering him. They're applauding his efforts. It looks great, 50 plates spinning. And for a moment it's all going wonderfully well because it is possible to spin 50 plates but it's only possible to do it for a short time. But look what's happening. As the 50 plates are spinning, everyone in that circus tent is cheering him on. He's the centre of attention. The applause of the crowd is massaging his ego so he doesn't want to stop. And then the crowd yells, encore, encore, do it again. And he's so caught up in the enthusiasm of the crowd. He thinks, yeah, I can do this again. And he begins rushing to the first few plates that are beginning to slow down and wobble. He gets there just in time, gives them another spin. And the crowd roar even more, encore, do it again, keep it going. And then there are more plates now beginning to slow. He goes back to plate 30, 31, 32, gives them a spin. But plate 21 is now almost coming to a stop. Suddenly one plate falls, two, three three, four, five, and before he knows it, almost all 50 plates are on the floor and he's exhausted. The whole show's in ruins. It's easy to listen to the crowd, to others egging you on, warming our hearts with their applause. Sometimes it's our own internal drive pushing us forward and we stretch ourselves beyond our reach and the plates come crashing down. Who suffers the most when the plates come crashing down? It's the people closest to you that suffer the most when your plates crash to the floor. A woman writes, Andy and I were so in love when we got married, it's hard to know when we really grew apart. His job became more and more demanding. He came home so tired he could hardly say hello, let alone tell me about his day or be prepared to be interested in mine. I hated it. And then as the years went by, a strange thing happened. I learned to live without him. 
It was as if something inside said, you're on your own. For your sakes and the kids' sake, face it and learn to live with it. And then one day I realized I didn't love him anymore. The voice that I longed to hear I now hated. He must have sensed this because incredibly he then wanted to talk. But it was too late. It was over. In football you get more points for an away win, don't you? It's like the offside rule, women don't understand that. You get more points for an away win. The truth about life is this. To win away but lose at home is not to win at all. As Rob Parsons says, and we know so well, nobody says on their deathbed, they wish they spent more time at the office. If this great life is all about relationships, then there will be only one way that we can live it, and that's with the right attitude. The only way our relationships will flourish is when they are dominated not by what we can get from them, but by what we can give to them. Life is so often seen as about asserting my interests, my wants and my desires. Gore Vidal, who's heavily criticised Christianity, expresses the way he sees our culture. He says it's not enough in our culture now to succeed. Others must fail. Whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. What a desperate thing to say. It is our self-obsession that destroys our relationships. And when our relationships are destroyed with God and with each other, life falls apart. William Temple talked about this self-centeredness. He says, we live in this self-centered world where I am the center of the world I see. Where the horizon, sorry, where the horizon is depends on where I stand. In other words, everything revolves around me. How different was Jesus? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And the Bible goes on to say that although he was in heaven, although he was God's son, he gave up that comfort, he gave up his status, he gave up his rights, left the glory of heaven as we sing, and came to die. To live as a man and to die on a cross. The Greek word behind it all is that he emptied himself of self. Instead of being full of self, like so much of today's world celebrates, Jesus emptied himself of self. His focus, his horizon, was not the heaven where he was, but his focus, his horizon, was as far as you and as far as me. The right attitude to see life from someone else's perspective. For God, his horizon could have been no further than the edges of heaven, but no, he looked beyond. And he saw life from our point of view. He understood in his humanity what it was like to be a human being, to live in this fallen world. And so he came to do something about it. That's the attitude that builds our lives. If self-focus and self-attention and self-assertion and self-obsession was the way to make life great, we would be in a fantastic world today, wouldn't we? Hello? Did I say something strange then? But manifestly, we are not in a fantastic world. The truth about life is that the interests of others must come first for your life and mine to work. And then finally, we need to know that the great life is only temporary. If we live thinking that this life is all there is, we will get in a right stew. 
It will not be a great life unless we realize that this life is temporary. If you live believing this is all there is, then death will hang over you like an ever-thickening cloud. But people do. They do live today as if the greatest reality is here and now. That what matters most is, I've said before, the physical world that we can see rather than the spiritual world that we can't. But Paul says, no, fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The greatest reality is not this temporal world that's fading away, but the spiritual world that will last forever. Death, not the end, but the beginning. My life, just the preface before the real story gets underway. While we live in the short today, in the words of Tozer, we would do well to think of the long tomorrow. The long tomorrow. But our culture screams at us. This is it. This moment is the only moment. Live for it. Don't let go of it. Grab it. Use it for all you've got. No wonder there's so much angst and disappointment in this life because we're treating it as if it is everything when it's only something. Life's great disillusionments come as we put the round peg of our hearts shaped for eternity into the square hole of this life on earth. We are children of heaven, not earth. Eternity, not time. And as we look around, people living as if the only day is this day, it's no wonder there's so much angst. No wonder there's so much despair and disillusionment. To live the great life here on earth, you need to know it's not the real thing. And certainly not the only thing that on earth we are passing through. If we live as if this is everything, our perspective will be shot and we'll be without any mooring, without any compass, without any sense of where we are or where we're going. We'll be in a right muddle. So are you living this great life today? This great life that begins with God and is all about relationships and requires an equilibrium that Jesus has come to bring. Seek first, he says, the kingdom of God and everything else will find its rightful place. And the right attitude that makes your relationship with God work and your relationships with one another work. And you know that at the end of the day all this is temporary. It's passing away. But you're ready for all that's coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great life that Jesus came to bring. And maybe this morning it's a reminder to us to put our relationship with God back on track. Maybe it's a reminder to put our relationship with our wife or our friends or our work colleagues back on track. Maybe it's a reminder to say no more so that in other situations we can say yes. Maybe it's a reminder about our attitude when we're so caught up in ourselves. And maybe it's a reminder not to live as if today is everything, investing everything in this material world that will be here today and gone tomorrow. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then lose his soul? 
Help us in each of these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.